Well, as you are grabbing your seat, let me encourage you now to grab your Bibles and turn them open to the book of Acts as we start a new series together. We're going to take the next stretch of life together, just journeying through the book of Acts. And so if you have your Bibles, find Acts. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, know that every Bible comes with a table of contents, and you just utilize that resource in the front of your Bible to find Acts, which is a really big book that uh, the first book you come to after the four Gospels in the New Testament. And that is significant for reasons that we will see here in a moment. One of the reasons why I love the book of Acts is because Acts is all about movement. Uh, as we begin to see how the gospel uh, took root in the hearts and lives of many men and women, and then it moved throughout the first century world, affecting change wherever it landed and wherever it, it blossomed, and really wherever it was lived out. And the big idea for this whole series just kind of revolves around this word movement, and it might be captured in this sent- sentence, that movement is what happens when the truth of the gospel collides, uh, the truth of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit collide in the context of the church. When you have the truth of the gospel, doctrinal realities about the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and exaltation of Jesus, and the power of the Holy Spirit, when the truth of the gospel and the power of the Spirit collide, that's when things start happening. That's when movement arises. That's when things start to change. And that's what the book of Acts is all about. It's about this collision that takes place, as we're going to read about in the first couple of chapters of this book over the next couple of weeks, and and then see how this collision of gospel truth and spirit power drives everything forward, and it continues to drive things forward today. You and I are here because of what goes down in the book of Acts. You and I are here because of this movement that started in the first century and it has swept across the globe, affecting people all over the planet. It's why we are here today singing songs to Jesus. It's why we're studying the scriptures. It's why we're fellowshipping with one another because we've been swept up in this movement that comes when the truth of the gospel and the power of the spirit collide. Now, it's important for us to understand what kind of movement we're talking about because that word movement can be misunderstood and applied in a few ways. And so let me clarify what I don't mean. When I talk about a movement, I'm not talking about a strictly moral movement. Christianity is not a strictly moral movement, meaning our role in the city of Seattle isn't to take out our disinfectant and go out into the world and start spraying everyone down with some type of moral disinfectant or moral spray to kind of clean people up on the outside. That's not what we're after. Because a moral movement doesn't drive after the heart. It doesn't get into the affections. It doesn't connect people in a loving, conscious relationship with who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for them. But at the same time, as we say we're not talking about a strictly moral movement, we're not strictly talking about a religious movement either. The Pharisees in the first century were a part of of a religious movement. And Jesus stepped onto the scene, and he examined their lives, and he interacted with the faith that they claimed to hold. And he said, you guys are just whitewashed tombs. Your lives look really good on the outside, but your hearts are as far from God as they possibly can be. You see, we're not a religious movement because a religious movement rises and falls upon the works of the worshipers involved. We are a part of a different kind of music that, uh, movement that says The gospel's movement and gospel movement doesn't rise and fall upon the works of the worshipers, meaning it doesn't rise and fall with our energy and with our input. The gospel movement rises and falls with the works of the one who is worshipped. This is what makes the gospel utterly different from every other religion in the world. 
Every other religion puts the accent on who you are, what you can accomplish and achieve, how well you can carry out certain tenets, certain principles, certain philosophies. The gospel comes in and says, it's not about how well you can carry forth those things. It's about how Jesus carried forth those things for us. And so we're not a religious movement because religious movements rise and falls upon the shoulders and the backs of the people who make them up. We are about a gospel music that, movement that rises and falls based on the work of Jesus for us. But to say that we're not a religious movement, we don't want to push the spectrum all the way to the other side and make this statement that is quite commonly heard today that, you know, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. And all of a sudden we begin to see this movement as being a strictly spiritual movement. Now the reason we don't want to move in that direction is because from my observations and the interactions I've had with those who claim I'm not religious, I'm spiritual, it seems to me that that movement, it doesn't have a lot of teeth to it. Meaning that movement doesn't really interact seriously with the deepest questions of life. It's kind of an ambiguous movement. It's kind of a, an amorphous movement. And it's hard to really get your handle on what's actually being talked about when we say we're spiritual, not religious. And so we're not a strictly spiritual movement in that direction either because the gospel challenges us and it calls us to deal with real questions, to talk about the heavy questions of life, to interact with deep questions about life and death, about heaven and hell, about relationship with Christ and all of these, about the, the condition of humanity and the problem of evil. The gospel drives us in that direction. So we're not a moral movement, we're not a religious movement, we're not strictly a spiritual movement, we're certainly not a political movement. The Christian faith is not a political movement in the sense that we square up with either the right or the left in this country. In fact, Christianity has taken some hits over the years because large swaths of Christianity or evangelical Christianity has squared up too much with one particular political persuasion. And the moment they do that, they can lose their prophetic edge. They can lose their voice. They become synonymous with things that they should not be considered synonymous with. You see, the gospel movement is not a political movement because the gospel movement indicts both the right and the left. It can affirm things about the right. It can affirm things about the left. It certainly denounces things about the right, and it denounces things about the left. And so if we're a political movement that's moving too closely in either one of those directions, all of a sudden we're not going to be able to speak up. We're not going to be able to speak out. We're not going to be able to see the real difference that the gospel makes in our lives and the way the gospel can affect and shape society in life-flourishing kinds of ways. So we're not a political movement. And then lastly, this movement that we're talking about is not a manufactured movement. It's not a manufactured movement. It's not one that we are a part of because we just corralled our ingenuity, we corralled our resources, we corralled our passions and our excitement, and we decided to manufacture some type of movement in the city to happen in the name of Jesus. No, it's not a manufactured movement because we take our cues from the one that we're following. And we remember in the gospel that Jesus made the statement, "You, I only do what I see my father doing. And whatever I see my father doing, that's what I'm doing. So Jesus was living in relationship with the Father, and he responded to what he saw the Father doing. He wasn't manufacturing anything. And if we're going to be about this gospel movement in our city and for the sake of the world around us, 
We should not manufacture anything. We should sit back and wait and discern and pray, commune with Christ and discern, okay, where are you at work? And when we discover where God is at work around us, we move, we join him, we get in on the current that's already flowing. It's not a current that we have to create. It's not a current that we have to manufacture. So when we talk about movement, understand we're not talking about a strictly moral movement, religious movement, spiritual movement, political movement, certainly not a manufactured movement. We're talking about a movement of the Spirit of God. Another title, another way in which Acts can be named is that sometimes it's referred to as Acts of the Apostles, but a much better understanding of this book is that it is Acts of the Holy Spirit. The key player in this book from start to finish is the Spirit of God. And he's working as the truth of the gospel is being heralded, as the truth of the gospel is being carried forth. The Spirit of God is working and moving and empowering, energizing everything that takes place. And so what I love about this book is that it showcases what happens when the truth of the gospel and the power of the Spirit, what happens when those two dynamics collide. So pick up in verse 1. We're going to focus on how uh, the mission of Jesus continues. I mean, I love the way Luke opens up this book. He says, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Now, the I there, as I mentioned, is a reference to, the, to uh, Luke. Now, Luke is also the author of the gospel according to Luke. So when he refers to the first narrative, he's referring to the story of Jesus that he researched, cataloged, and chronologized uh, in that gospel that bears his name. And what's interesting is that when he wrote the gospel of Luke, which was volume one of what he was trying to produce, and Acts might be considered volume two, he addresses the same person. He says, I'm writing to these things to you, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, Theophilus... We don't know a whole lot about him. It seems that he was a person of influence because of how he's referred to in the Gospel of Luke, that he's honorable Theophilus. Chances are he was a man of, of influence and some, carried some weight in society who had met Jesus and put his faith in Jesus. But at some point in time, he began to, uh, his, his faith in Jesus started to stall out. And the movement that he had been swept up into began to stall in his life for one reason or another. The reason why I think that is because how the gospel of Luke begins. Check it out in Luke chapter 1. Luke writes this, Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the world handed, word handed them down to us. It also seemed good to me, since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first, to write to you in an orderly sequence, Most Honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. Now that word certainty can also be translated firm foundation. I'm writing to provide you with a firm foundation, and that's necessary if movement's going to happen. You know that you can't move unless you are standing and on a firm foundation. You have to have traction. So if your foot starts to slip and you lose traction, you're not going to move in anywhere productive. And it seems this is what's happened to some degree in Theophilus' life. If not in his, I know it's something that happens in our lives where our feet start to slip. And we start to lose certainty about the realities of Jesus that we've come to believe and trust in. And, and there's all kinds of reasons why 
we may lose traction and we may find ourselves stalling out in our relationship with Jesus. One hand, we might start thinking about our past and we might start thinking about just how deep and dark some things are in our past. And awareness of those things might cause us to think, well, our past is way too heavy to move so heavy we cannot move forward in our relationship with Jesus. And so we start stalling out because our past is, is too heavy. The guilt is too deep. The shame is too deep. Or we start thinking about our present. We might say, well, man, my present life just seems so mundane. It seems so ordinary. I'm not really experiencing much in my relationship with God and and everything just seems hollow. I go to work, I go home, I go to work, I go home. There's nothing really eternal about anything that I'm experiencing on a daily basis. And so this experience of a hollow present can also cause our faith to stall out and the movement to lose traction in our lives. But then there's another dynamic where we start thinking about the future. And we might think, well, the future is just too hopeless. Maybe that's because our present sucks. And when our present is struggling... We take what is struggling and what is so bad about the now and we project it into the future thinking this is going to be for our, our forever. And what that does is that creates hopelessness, which is the opposite of faith. You know, faith doesn't project the present into the future. Faith grabs the future and brings it into the present. And this is how Christians live. This is where we find traction. We begin to think about all the implications of Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection. We start thinking about the reality of his return, which is touched on here in the beginning of Acts as well. And we realize, okay, Jesus is in charge. Jesus is victorious. Jesus is coming back one day. And when he comes back, he's going to set everything right. Now, so I don't know exactly why Theophilus' faith may have been stalling out. I don't know exactly why your faith may be stalling out, but I do believe the remedy is to be found in what we're about to see in Acts chapter 1. But before I provide the remedy, let's look else at what Luke is saying here. He says, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about, I love this, about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, you would think if Luke's referring back to the gospel, he could have said something like, I wrote to you about all that Jesus did and all that Jesus taught, final. But he doesn't use that language. He says, I'm writing to you about everything Jesus began to do and teach. What is the implication? Well, the implication is that Jesus isn't done doing and he isn't done teaching. That Jesus' mission continues. That there's more to be done in the world. His kingdom needs to be advanced further and further and further into the world. And so Jesus began to do and began to teach, but he's continuing to do and he's continuing to teach through those who would come to believe the truth of the gospel and be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. He will continue doing. He will continue teaching. So the mission of Jesus continues because Jesus' doing and teaching isn't done. Now, one thing to think about when it relates to Jesus' ministry is he refers to what Jesus began to do and teach. You need to understand this about the mission of Jesus. The mission of Jesus consists of both words and works. It says, what Jesus began to do, that's works, and what Jesus taught, that's words. Now, when we think about the works and words of Jesus, not many people get upset by the works of Jesus. Most of us really enjoy hearing about the things Jesus did for people. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He loved people very, very well. In our day, people don't really get upset about the works of Christians. People love and they even admire hearing about churches that are taking care of the sick and that are 
helping the homeless and that are helping the hurting, that are doing really good things in a city like ours. That can raise some admiration. That can capture some attention. It's not really the works of Christ and it's not really the works of Christians that cause friction. When things can sometimes turn sideways, it's when the words of Jesus are affirmed. It's when Jesus starts speaking. It's when Christians start speaking. That's what gets us in trouble. That's what got Jesus in trouble. Jesus was crucified not because of the things that he did. He was crucified because of the things he said. Because he said things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except by me. Because he claimed to be God through his words, and that claim got him crucified. So it wasn't the works of Jesus that people pushed back against. It was the words of Jesus and just a word for you and for I. It's not really our works as Christians that's going to get met with resistance in the world. It's when we open our mouths and our words reflect Jesus' words. And we begin to say the things that Jesus said about money. We begin to say the things Jesus said about greed. We begin to say the things Jesus said about sex and lust. We begin to say the things Jesus said about how to forgive those who offend us and how to turn the other cheek and to bless those who persecute us. It's when we speak up and we open our mouths and we say the things that Jesus said, that's when friction's going to come. And as you read through the book of Acts, a lot of the tension is going to come the moment Christians open their mouths and they start saying things. This is such a prominent dynamic that one-third of the book of Acts consists of speeches. A third of the book is sermons preached by guys like Peter and Stephen and others. The tension comes when words are spoken. So we need to see this about the mission of Jesus. Because if we're going to be swept up in the movement, if we're going to find ourselves experiencing the reality of God working through us, we must understand that that reality works through, yes, our works, but also our words. So we want to be a speaking people as Jesus is a speaking, speaking Savior. So you got words and works here, and and then he says, I'm teaching about all the things that Jesus began to do and teach, referring to the message of Jesus until the day he was taken up after he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. So the difference between Luke and Acts. The Gospel of Luke focused heavily on the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. The book of Acts, the reason why it is needed is because the book of Acts focuses us, focuses us in on the, the ascension and the exaltation of Jesus. Luke, crucifixion and resurrection, Acts, ascension and exaltation, meaning Acts shows us what life looks like for those who realize Jesus is king. If we realize Jesus is king and we're living in light of that reality, Acts is going to show us what types of things can go down. The movement our life should take if we're living in light of this ascended, exalted, enthroned king, Jesus. But before we get into that, verse 3, or let's just keep moving in verse 3. It says, after he had suffered, he had also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. What he begins to do in verse 3 is he reminds us that this movement depends upon core central gospel realities. Core aspects of the gospel story, the movement of God's spirit in the book of Acts depends upon these dynamics that are referred to in verse 3. And you see two of them there that are core to the gospel. First in verse 3, after he had suffered, that's a reference to the crucifixion of Jesus. 
And then it says he also presented himself alive. Two sides of the gospel coin, right? The crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. Jesus died for our sins to pay the penalty our sins deserved. And he resurrected because God the Father accepted his sacrifice. So he suffered and now he is alive. He died and he is risen. That is the tenet. That's the core of the gospel. When we talk about the gospel, we don't just want to talk about the cross. And when we talk about the gospel, we don't just want to talk about the empty tomb. When we talk about the gospel, we want to focus on crucifixion, resurrection. The two go hand in hand, just as Luke is illustrating for us here. And this is the essence of the, Christ, of the Christian faith. The essence of Christianity is about what Jesus has done for us through the cross and resurrection. This is what changes our lives. It's believing this truth. It's being affected by this truth. But what I really find interesting about this passage is that it says that he presented himself alive to them, that is his disciples, by many convincing proofs. Now, you would think it would only take Jesus one time showing up, right? One time to see the resurrected Jesus, to believe that he is the Messiah, that he had risen. But here we are told that Jesus presented himself by many convincing proofs. That means he sporadically showed up over a period of 40 days to convince the disciples that he's the Messiah, that yes, he died, but he is now alive. And this whole movement happens time and time again over the course of the 40 days when Jesus would show up and he would share breakfast with people. He would eat meals with his disciples, convincing them, look, I'm not a ghost. Food goes in and it's not dropping to the floor, right? He's saying, look, I'm physical. He shows up to Thomas, and he shows him the scars. I am the one who was crucified. And he says, look, I even want you to touch my scars, he tells Thomas. He shows up time and time again, providing many convincing proofs. Now, there's one of the earliest texts in the New Testament, one of the earliest writings in all the Bible, or all the New Testament, is 1 Corinthians chapter, three, or chapter 15, verses 3 through 5. It's a description of the gospel, and in it, there's a lot of things that really echo what Luke is saying here in verse 3, and I want to share it with you because it provides some color. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul writes this, For I passed on to you as most important. That is, this is, what, this is the heart of the matter. This is what is ultimately important. What I also received, that Christ, here it is, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, crucifixion. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Resurrection. But then he goes on, and that he appeared, that is he showed himself to Cephas, that guy's name is, is another name for Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep, some have died. So Jesus showed himself, the crucified and risen Christ appeared to the disciples and we know he did this, and to over 500 others. And he did this time and time again for 40 days. One of the things I want you to understand is we should never assume that it was easy for people in the first century to believe in a resurrected Christ. It wasn't easy for disciples in the first century to believe the gospel. Even though they could see Jesus and interact with Jesus, it still wasn't easy. You see, in the first century worldview, particularly in the Jewish worldview, nobody believed that resurrection would happen in the middle of history in the life of one person. Nobody believed that. It was totally foreign to the Judaic worldview. Now, there were a lot of people who believed in a general resurrection of the dead at the end of time, but no one believed it could happen by way of one man in the middle of human history. And so when Jesus resurrected, that was a total worldview shift for the Jewish people. 
It was a total mind-blowing experience for those who were interacting with Jesus who had risen. So if it's hard for you to believe in a crucified and risen Christ, I want you to know it was hard for people in the first century as well. It wasn't easy. And so we don't want to be guilty of what's called chronological snobbery where we look down upon previous generations and say they are not as enlightened, they are not as smart as we are, their worldview is far more superstitious than our worldview. We don't want to look down on previous generations assuming that they are somehow inferior to us. That wasn't the case. The disciples did not believe in the resurrected Christ because it was easy. They believed in the resurrected Christ because they stuck around. And Jesus continued to show up. And he impressed himself upon his people over and over and over again. And eventually it got to where they were convinced, they believed. And most of the disciples would give their lives bearing witness to that reality. You don't die for a lie. You die for something you know deep down it is true. And 11 of the 12 disciples would die as martyrs bearing witness to this reality. Why? Because they were convinced, because Jesus impressed himself upon them. And if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian and you have a hard time believing these things, let me just encourage you to open yourself up, to continue to put yourself in earshot of the gospel. Continue to run around with those who are believing the gospel and who are trusting in Christ. And and I believe that Jesus will do for you what he did for his disciples. He will impress himself upon you in a way that will convince you. And you will find yourself believing that salvation has come through the person and the work of Jesus. This is the truth of the gospel. And this is what the movement that's found in the book of Acts and that you and I are a part of. It's what this movement depends. And so coming back to some of those reasons why um, your faith may be stalling out and you might not be a part of this. It, It is this reality of the crucified and risen Christ that's able to deal with your heavy past. It's the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ that assures us that there's no guilt, there's no shame, there's no fear that Christ's death can't cover. That Christ's crucifixion can't lodge us out of so that we can move forward in our lives. We don't have to bear the weight of guilt and shame all the days of our lives only to carry that into eternity. No, that can be alleviated now. That's why Christ died. That's why Christ rose. For those who may feel like their present is hollow, it is the reality of the crucified and resurrected Christ that can fill you with purpose. It can give shape to your life so you think, okay, there is something worth living for. There's actually something worth dying for, which is what you're going to see happen in the book of Acts by several people. And then you think about your future being hopeless. Understand that the crucifixion and the resurrected resurrection of Christ, it assures us that the future is bright. That the future for those trusting in Jesus is bright. And so by faith, we bring that future into the present. We live in light of that reality. And when we're living in light of that reality, we can endure whatever hell we are going through in the world that is. So this gospel, it can deal with all of those things that may weigh us down. And it can spur us on to movement. But on one hand, this movement depends upon the gospel, the truth of the gospel, but understand that this movement is energized by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is where Luke goes next. After laying out the truth of the gospel in verse 3, he then reminds us of the need for the Spirit's power. Verse 4, he says, while he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, that is the Holy Spirit, which he said, you have heard me speak about 
For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom of Israel at this time? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive, here it is, power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. One of my heroes in the faith is a guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones pastored a church in London for the first half of the 20th century, and he, he made this statement one time. He said, you know, I spend half my time telling Christians to study doctrine. Half my time telling Christians, study doctrine, think about gospel realities, be about truth. But then he says, and I spend the other half of my time telling them that doctrine isn't enough. And I think that's the dynamic you see in Acts chapter 1. Study doctrine, know about the crucified, risen Christ. Think about his ascension and his enthronement. Think deeply about gospel truth, but understand that doctrine in and of itself isn't enough. What we need is what the disciples needed in this moment. We need the Spirit to be given to us. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to energize us. It is the Holy Spirit that ignites the gospel realities in our soul. It's the Holy Spirit that causes us to be receptive and responsive to the crucified, risen Christ, to the reality of his ascension and his enthronement. So we want to think about how we need both truth and power in our lives. This is where we go. This is where movement starts. Movement happens when the truth of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit collide in the life of the church. And so from this point forward, the church is going to start moving eventually. But pick up in verse 9, focusing on the movement of the church. After he had said this, he was taken up. That is another reference to his ascension. As they were watching, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven, and suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. Now again, taken up, that's the ascension of Jesus. At one moment, Jesus is with the disciples talking. The next moment, he's rising high and he's disappearing. Now, I don't know how that works. I don't know what went down for Jesus moving into another dimension or being ascended or whatever the case may be. I can't explain that to you. The Bible doesn't describe it for us. It just uses the metaphor of a cloud and the, Jesus was taken up. But what I do know is that this is really good news. Because it can be tempting for churches and Christians to think, you know, life would be so much easier to live by faith if Jesus was standing right beside us. If Jesus was physically leading our church, then we would be all about the things that Jesus is about. But before Jesus was ascended, he actually taught his disciples the exact opposite. He told them in the Gospel of John, look, it is better for me to go than to stay. Because whenever I leave, I'm gonna, my Father is then going to give you my spirit and so when you think about Jesus being taken up, when you think about his ascension, what that means is it doesn't mean that Jesus has left us. What that means is that Jesus is now present with us in the most dynamic way possible. The ascension means that Jesus is now here all over the world in the lives of his people. That he ascended and then gave his spirit to every single disciple giving himself, his presence, his spirit to us. And it is the Holy Spirit that energizes us, that empowers us to be the men and women we've been redeemed to be. 
There's a remarkable shift from the Gospel of Luke to the book of Acts. In the Gospel of Luke, people experienced the Spirit through the presence of Jesus because they interacted with Jesus physically in person. But in the book of Acts, and still today, do you know what happens? Today, people now experience Jesus through the presence of the Spirit. They experience Jesus through Spirit-filled people. This means, Christians, don't miss this, that the works you do and the words you speak, those are designed to lead people into an encounter with Jesus. Those are the vehicles through which Jesus impresses himself upon people in life-changing ways. And so the role that we play as a church in this world is unlike any role anybody around us has. It is utterly unique, and we want to be about this dynamic. We want to be swept up in the movement of the Spirit working in us and through us, igniting the truth of the gospel in life-changing ways. This is what Jesus is preparing his disciples for as the book of Acts begins. But what I want you to think about is that there are two threats to this movement in the life of our church. Two threats to this movement being realized in our lives and being realized in our church that I want us to avoid. And they're the same threats that the disciples faced in Acts chapter 1. One threat is this. One way that you and I can miss out on what Jesus is doing. And we can, might accidentally even opt out of being about this movement of God in the world is if you and I find ourselves obsessively asking questions that Jesus isn't answering. Obsessively asking questions that Jesus isn't answering. I think this goes down in verse 6. The disciples come to him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom of Israel at this time? Now, Jesus doesn't blast the question. He doesn't say that's a dumb question. He doesn't say... Don't ask the question. He's saying, I'm not answering the question. And so he goes on to say, it is not for you to know times or periods that the Father is set by his own authority. In other words, he says, relax. Just relax. There's more work to be done. There's other things I want you to focus on. But one of the reasons why Christians sometimes stall out in their faith and churches stall out in being about this movement of God in the world is we find ourselves obsessively asking questions that Jesus isn't answering. And we zero in on obscure theological nuances to the point that, they, that are practically irrelevant, it seems. Because these are questions and these are discussions that we can get into that, that aren't clearly spoken to of the Scriptures. And we find ourselves stepping out of our jurisdiction and claiming God's spoken on some things clearly that He might not have spoken clearly on. Another way to think about it is this. The Bible doesn't answer every question you want to answer. The Bible doesn't answer every question you have about life in this world. What the Bible does is it answers every question you need answered. Every question you need to live in relationship with God through faith in Christ. So when you read the scriptures, you're reading the scriptures to find Jesus. You're not reading the scriptures to discover every answer to every question that you have. Because Jesus doesn't answer every question that we may have. And if we find ourselves obsessing over questions that the Bible doesn't speak to, we're going to stall out. I've met many Christians who've bailed on the faith because they've been stuck on a question that the Bible doesn't speak to, and then they just walk away. And I, perhaps the disciples were tempted to do that in this moment, because Jesus, but Jesus says, look, even, 
even if that is the case, I'm not here to answer every question that you have. There are some things that the Father knows, and he will make that known when the time is right. But for now, there's work to be done. So don't get bogged down in asking questions that Jesus isn't answering. Take the Bible seriously. Study doctrine. But don't get bogged down on things that aren't clear and aren't crystal clear in the Scriptures and when it comes to gospel realities. But then the second threat is this. And it's probably more so, it's more important perhaps than that one. One threat is when we ask questions Jesus is not answering and we get bogged down. The other one is this, is when we find ourselves gazing rather than going. We find ourselves gazing rather than going. After Jesus ascended, he was taken up. The disciples did what we would all do. They stood there, locked in with where they were, and they were just gazing into the heavens. Nobody's going to look away because something incredibly unique just happened. Something miraculous just occurred. So it makes sense that they are gazing into heaven, that they are enamored with all the things that they're realizing about who Jesus was and about what Jesus did and about where Jesus has now gone. And so they're gazing into the heavens and, and they're just standing there. And, and then these two angels show up to kind of nudge them. Hey, remember, you've got a mission to be about. He says, why are you standing here gazing? The Jesus that you saw ascending, he's going to come back. He's going to return. He's going to make all things new. He's going to bring in a new heaven and a new earth. But until that day comes, there's movement to be done. So he tells the disciples, look, gazing's great, but don't just stand there gazing. You've got to get going. And so when I say that a threat to the movement and life of our church is when we find ourselves gazing rather than going, what that means is that we're not always drawing the connection between our worship and our witness. We're not always drawing the connection between the reason we gather and the opportunities we have to scatter throughout the city of Seattle. We find ourselves gazing rather than going, not connecting the dots and seeing how our worship of Jesus is what compels our witness to Jesus. There was one scholar who put it this way in a little book he wrote. He says, it seems to me that the Christian life, when properly lived, is a rhythmic alternation between turning toward God in worship and running toward the world in love between congregation and dispersal, liturgy and labor, worship and work, adoration and obedience. He's saying, let your gazing drive your going. That's the rhythm we live in. That's why we gather on a weekly basis. We gather to gaze. We gather to focus on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. But then we scatter to go to do what the Spirit has been given to us to do, that we might bear witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. In other words, that we may be, bear witness here, there, and everywhere in the world. That it is our gazing that drives the going, but what happens in churches that stall out is we focus on one or the other. And there are sometimes churches that are all about gazing, and the entirety of the Christian life is lived out on Sundays. And Sundays has no effect on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday or any other day of the week. That the extent of my Christianity is all about gathering with the church on Sundays. That's the only time I think about Jesus. That's the only time I talk about Jesus. That's the only time I talk to Christians or interact with Christians. It's the only time I'm about Christianity is when I'm with the church gazing. But then there are other churches that it might not be stuck in that rut, but they're all about going. They might even talk down the necessity of gathering with the church, thinking, well, Sundays aren't that important. Worshiping with other Christians isn't that necessary for your Christianity. You can just go and do the works of Jesus. 
You can just go and do the things that Jesus did and, and say the things Jesus said just out and about scattered throughout the city. And you might even go for it, and you might try to live a going-centered Christianity, but what you're going to find over the long haul is you're going to forget why you ever started in the first place. Eventually, your tank is going to run dry, and you're not going to have anything holding you together and compelling you forward in that movement. So sometimes churches stall because they're all about gazing. Sometimes churches stall because they're all about going and serving and doing work and being energetic and active and all these types of things. But Jesus and The example we find all throughout scriptures is that gazing drives going, that the two go hand in hand. This is why as a church, we live in the rhythm of gathering and scattering. We gather to gaze and we scatter to go. We gather to worship and we scatter to witness. My son Asher has been showing me this this summer when he stumbled upon a TV show that he really likes, and it's a show called uh, Holy Moly. Uh, Now, Holy Moly is a newer show that came out this summer, and if you don't know what Holy Moly is, it's basically if American Ninja Warrior and and Putt-Putt had a baby, uh, that's what you get. You get Holy Moly. And so you have this radical Putt-Putt course laid out, and contestants come, and they play the game, and they compete against one another, and there's all kinds of obstacles and tricks, and it's just extreme Putt-Putt. Asher loves it. So every day, he's like, Ash, uh, Dad, when, when, or every week, he's like, Dad, when does Holy Moly come on? And I'm telling him, Thursday, 8 o'clock, ABC, Thursday. I have to know because he's asking me constantly. And when I turn it on, Asher will sit there and he will just lock in. And he will fix his gaze on it. He will laugh. He will interact. He loves it. And when it goes off, he'll then go into the living room and he'll start building little putt-putt course holes in our living room. Now, we're staying in my mother-in-law's two-bedroom condo, which isn't very big, but but he's filled our living space with these crazy putt-putt holes. He's taking cups, he's taking uh, pillows, he's taking everything, Legos, everything he can think of, and he's designing little holes. And then when we leave the apartment, he's constantly talking about holy moly. And he's telling everybody about the course he's building in his home and, and how much fun it is to watch holy moly. And all this shows me that, that his gazing is ultimately driving his going, Right? He's gazing and he's falling in love with something. And as a result of this love that he has for what he's seen, he's now letting everybody know about it. That's the rhythm of gazing and going. One of the fundamental dynamics of being a human is that you're going to talk about what you love. You're going to bear witness to what you worship. And what happens in the rhythm of the Christian life is that we gather to remind ourselves who loves us most. And when we fix our gaze on the love the Savior has for us, his, that experience begins to warm our heart and melts us so that we, in turn, love him. And as we're gazing in that exchange, worshiping and adoring Jesus, we then go and we speak and we serve and we witness through our words and our works as gazing drives our going. So the kind of church I want to see God continue to grow among us is a church that gazes and a church that goes. A church that connects the dynamic between worship and witness, between gazing and going. That's the kind of church that's going to see God do extraordinary things. That's what made up the first century church. They would gather and gaze, and they would scatter to witness. We're going to see that over and over and over again in the book of Acts. And what's really interesting about the book of Acts is that it only took about 30 years for things to change. 
Acts only covers about 33 years. And in that very short time frame where Christians are gazing and going, that, that dynamic changed the world. There was one scholar and historian who said that 30, he wrote a book titled 30 Years to Change the World, and this is what he described. He said, three crucial decades in world history, that is all it took. In the years between A.D. 33 and 64, a new movement was born. In those 30 years, it got sufficient growth and credibility to become the largest faith the world has ever seen and to change the lives of hundreds of millions of people. It has spread into every corner of the globe and has more than 2 billion adherents. It has had an indelible impact on civilization, on culture, on education, on medicine, on freedom, and of course on the lives of countless people worldwide. And the seedbed for all this, the time when it took decisive root, was in these three decades. 30 years to change the world. It all began with a dozen men and a handful of women, and then the Spirit came. And when the Spirit came, things started to change. The truth of the gospel that they were believing was ignited and movement was created. And this is what we want in the life of our church. 30 years is not quite a lifetime. What could God do in the city of Seattle through those who were gazing and going, gazing and going for 30 years? What if we just gave 30 years to looking at Jesus together and then living for Jesus together? Well, what type of changes would arise in our lives and in the lives of those around us as we pressed into this reality and we pressed into this movement. When you come to the end of Acts, chapter 28, the book you're going to find ends abruptly. It ends starkly. In fact, Luke doesn't even write a conclusion. He doesn't conclude his book because the implication is that this movement that you see in Acts, that it is continuing to happen today. And you and I are a part of this movement so we commit to the truth of the gospel, we rely upon the power of the Spirit, and we watch God do his thing. Let's pray together.